0: Weeping for Jesus, coming up on Love Thy Neighbor.
1: You're listening to the Love Thy Neighbor podcast, your home for discussion and analysis of the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of Ryan Goldbeard.
0: Welcome back to yet another episode of Love By Niebuhr, the only podcast that is exclusively dedicated to the theology, ethics, and political philosophy of the Reinhold Niebuhr. I'm Cliff Bailey, and I'm joined by co-hosts Zach Narrison and Aaron Duncan. Well, we took about a month off of Beyond Tragedy for our October interviews. If you haven't got caught up on that yet, you should go check it out. There are some of my Probably my favorite like month of doing the show. It just talked to some great people, learned so much. And it felt like there was a certain urgency to it because the election was coming up and uh, we had a lot of things to talk about. So make sure you go back and check that out. But returning to Niebuhr's Beyond Tragedy uh, today, it's a, it's a book written in 1937. As a reminder, it was written so on the eve of World War II. is going to say some things in here, by the way, especially at the end of this chapter we're going over, that are a little eye-popping. Like, how how are you predicting this? But today, uh, we are rejoining Beyond Tragedy in Chapter 8, a chapter titled Christianity and Tragedy. Christianity and Tragedy. And it's not a little related to the title of the book, I would presume, of Beyond Tragedy. But this chapter is called uh, Christianity and Tragedy. And now I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Aaron to read Niebuhr's selected scripture for this chapter.
2: Great. Yeah. So the the scripture for this chapter is Luke chapter 23, verses 27 through 29. And it reads, A great number of the people followed him, and among them were women who were beating their breasts and wailing for him. But Jesus turned them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For the days are surely coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed.
0: Now, Niebuhr basically is going to be breaking down this uh, chapter into sections. Um, And so I have taken the liberty of naming these sections because Niebuhr doesn't do it. So, first, there's going to be, there's basically going to be three parts to this, three sections, and an introduction. The introduction I've named. Christianity overcomes tragedy pity those without understanding Christianity overcomes tragedy pity those without understanding Uh, section one I named most die pitifully not tragically this is an uplifting chapter (laughs) (laughs) most die pitifully not tragically that means you listener probably. Number two, and me. Number two, uh, section two. I named Greek forms of tragedy, transcending, descending, and demanding pity. And the last chapter, I named Jesus, the true antihero, the true antihero. So let's let's get into it now. A little disclaimer here: Niebuhr is very literary in his assessments in this chapter and introduces some terms that quite honestly you never see you very rarely see in theology. So we're gonna try to not lose you. Uh but this is a pretty dense chapter that was honestly it was kind of difficult for me. Um I know Zach said he had to read it twice. Uh you know Aaron is of course beyond us all and so had no difficulty I'm sure but uh I it was it was a difficult chapter for me. Um, but first of all, uh, I, I just want to get you guys the reflections on this chapter a little bit. What did you guys think? What disclaimers would you give for this chapter? Because it obviously is not Niebuhr's simplest to go through.
1: yeah. I mean, that that would be my takeaway also that the his you have to be familiar. I think it would be very beneficial to be familiar with um Greek some Greek myths. and i I'm not super. I mean, I know a few of the Greek myths and that sort of thing, but it sounds like he was very familiar um, as he kind of uses them very uh, freely in this in this chapter. Um, the other thing I would say is that at the same time, as difficult as this chapter is, I, based on what the chapter is about and based on what um, the chapter is named, really, I would assume that this is actually probably revealing of what Niebuhr was intending a huge part of what Niebuhr was intending with the entire book, the entire collection of sermons that we're reading here and beyond tragedy. Hmm. Um, it's, you know, Christianity is a religion which transcends tragedy. I, I think that that's a line here from the first section. Yeah. Uh, so it, as difficult as this chapter is to understand, it's probably, and I, it's a mystery to me still. I mean, I understand where he's going, but I don't, I, I think there's still some things, you know, things we spots need to, to fill in. Out. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. to understand how it ties into that.
2: I think the the biggest difficulty is, I guess, just putting everything into context. Because what Niebuhr, I think, is doing, we talked about this before recording, is he's trying to synthesize Promethean and, and Dionysus, like, tragic elements. And then he goes beyond that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so Niebuhr uses, like, words like resolution and beyond like the cross is the resolution of tragedy but then he goes and says you know christianity is a religion that's beyond tragedy so i kind of wonder how he makes sense of the resolution and something beyond yeah because whatever. we don't
0: really give that much of that in this uh, no. the actual resolution itself no um but he kind of points to jesus kind of being the completion of tragedy yeah yeah
2: and I, I think the, the other difficult thing is, as well, might for us, tragedy is a form of entertainment and it can also be a form of comedy in the mm-hmm. ancient world. Um, and I mean, there are tragic comedies as well that like people just like to spectate and view. And it, it is often the case that we kind of just lose ourselves mm-hmm. in watching this stuff. But Niebuhr is really turning a mirror to ourselves and like saying, no, look at yourself. Well, yeah, I think a, a
0: central thrust of Niebuhr in general is trying to take uh, something that we see normally for entertainment and see see why it's entertaining. It's because it's so it reflects your reality. Yeah, you know, so much of this is what you see in your everyday life. Um, yeah, that, that's a great point. It's it's really is kind of turning some of these myths into a mirror and seeing why we get a kick out of these things and some maybe things that they get right and some nuances, maybe they don't. uh, yeah. but it, it's it's like something that I think Niebuhr does really well. And I think uh, Joshua Malden brought this up is the comparative, he called it comparative religion, but the comparative capabilities of Niebuhr to compare Christianity with uh, Greek myths, with other religions, and kind of bring out a clarifying way of understanding the world uh, through that that kind of mm-hmm. collision between Christianity and and the way that we tend to view the world through these other uh, religious beliefs. So,
2: and if I if I can just jump in and say one more thing, and I, this is nothing I want to talk about today because it's just too big, but the other th- complication I have, and this is more of like a suspicion, is Niebuhr's use of like freedom. The way how he understands freedom in the Christian context, and he he contrasts the cr- Christian's understanding of freedom with what we'll get into in a bit with Prometheus, a Greek tragic tragedies version of determinism. Like mm-hmm. the tragic, the tragic characters are almost determined to do what they do, mm-hmm. or they bring it upon themselves and they have to suffer what they do. You know, I, I would like to put Niebuhr in conversation with people like Bentley Hart and other people to see like if we can suss out you know may- maybe Niebuhr's taking for granted like some notions of freedom and other stuff you now I-, I wonder i'm not sure but that's just another thing i thought about but
0: i'd be interested in hearing more about that cuz i've heard you going on about freedom a lot lately and <laughs> and i know that I you know. have you ha- you do take some issues with Niebuhr's uh, maybe understanding of freedom through kind of a liberal i don't i don't know man. democratic view i don't know yeah whatever Uh, so let's go ahead and get into the introduction so again we got an introduction then three parts introduction i called christianity overcomes tragedy pity those without understanding uh zach can you give us kind of a rundown just of this um of this intro like what's he going on about he starts talking about the women weeping for jesus what's going on here
1: well cliff i i can always try um (laughs) the the uh i mean he he, classic neighbor thing to do uh, he's bringing together, I think, two main ideas, and he uses this uh, distinction between the women weeping for Jesus and then Jesus saying, you know, weep for yourselves. Um, and he's d- kind of juxtaposing two ideas. One is pity, uh, things that are pitied, and then th- things that are, that transcend tragedy. So, like, there's the, the, I guess you could say there's the the tragic situation where somebody is pitied, but then there's a situation which goes beyond that. And Jesus, by saying, I think what Niebuhr is getting at here in the beginning is he's saying, when he tells them to weep for themselves, he's saying, you know, I, he doesn't need to be pitied. Um, that actually his situation transcends the necessity of pity. Uh, he's a true, truly, hist- a truly heroic figure, and that he transcends uh, the present tragedy. And so Niebuhr kind of is getting to the point that Christ- Christianity in general, the the Christ movement is there is a religion which transcends tragedy it goes beyond the need for that pity and in this um, in
0: this introduction he kind of sets up these key definitions of tragedy and pity uh or we can call it he calls it pathos or pathos how do you say it greek nerds pathos pathos <laughs> i figured I it was so. pathos okay i figured it was whatever i wasn't saying i so. think i don't
2: know maybe it is <laughs>
0: we'll just pathos, wait to correct pathos. you the Omicron makes it an os, right? Yeah, whatever. Uh, so the pathetic, uh, are people that there is nothing heroic about the way that they die or the way that they fail. They just fail. They just die. Tragic. A tragic figure is more somebody who ha- who is breaking the barriers of s- in some way challenging the gods. You know, loyal to some higher duty. You know, and dies despite of it. So Niebuhr says, first and foremost, what they both have in common is we we love what is weak and, and suffers. But when something is weak and suffers because of its strength, that's tragedy. Um, when when somebody's strength is directly tied to their failure, that's tra- that's a tragic figure, something that is pathetic or pitiful is that which is just uh that which just dies, you know um, without some higher cause or something like that uh so when when the women come in and they want to pity Jesus, you know uh and at best we, you know you could view Jesus as a tragic figure maybe Let, let's say for instance, a little thought experiment, take away the resurrection
2: mm-hmm.
0: take away the happy ending. <clears throat> Jesus dies. Maybe we could call it a martyr's death. Well, a mar- um, calling it a martyr's death kind of infuses a little bit of tragedy in there, right? Yeah.
2: Well, victory as well, to that make extent, right?
0: Yeah, kind of a victory. There's a victory contained yeah, within martyrdom uh, that only because of the Christian view, really, yeah, yeah, of, of the happy ending and doing what's right despite uh, what, all that's wrong that's happening to you now. So is like, take away the resurrection. Is Jesus pathetic or is he tragic?
1: Yeah. It's a good question. I think probably be more of a martyr. It depends on who you ask, really. Some people would say that, you know, they would see him as a martyr. I mean, there are, there are religions that see Jesus as a martyr. And, but I think a martyr, it almost in some ways tries to transcend pity also in the sense that it tries to be like that there was meaning beyond that their existence was brought up in their death. You know what I mean? That they're their death was so significant it's so meaningful because of what they died for mm-hmm.
2: well i but i think I,
1: jesus goes even beyond that and
2: i don't know Christianity. Because we're, if we're just thinking about what Niebuhr is saying Niebuhr says that jesus isn't a tragic hero tragic heroes often need the the background love of the chorus in greek dramas To for for self pity, so they are they're initiating self pity, Mm -hmm. they're asking for the Tell me how great that comes later on in the chapter. So, the thing is for for Niebuhr, the what makes Jesus not not pitiful or or tragic, I think, is because he's sinless. Now, that's despite Mm -hmm. his resurrection. Yeah, I think the a, a more a better contrast would be between. Well, if Jesus just dies and the happy ending goes, he would probably be almost on equal grounding as maybe Sisyphus or Prometheus Mm -hmm. because he is continually damned. You know, he's judged. What if we thought
0: about it in this way? So if we zoom out and do a bird's eye view of just the ancient world and in a way you could say without resurrection, Jesus is just another dead criminal. Another dead criminal died on the cross. Yeah. You know, it's pathetic. You know, you zoom in a little bit closer, you get some pieces that, okay, he was living for something. He was, he was, stri- he had some moral striving. I see. What he was kind of opposing Rome wow. a little bit, or some, some might try to paint him that way, as opposing Rome by this death. Yeah. Uh, kind of like sticking his thumb uh in the eye of of caesar by dying some might view it that way then you could maybe view it as a tragedy but then you could even turn it again and be like yeah but he didn't do anything yeah he got really strong he he? got to jerusalem and he gave up like he 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 could have fled you know he could have picked up a sword with peter and died tragically in battle against
2: rome the most like you know physical he gets is flipping over a few tables and chasing right. out, you know, like so. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, yeah, I, I, see where you're going with that. So if we're just like maybe contrasting G, like a, like a, like a Roman general to Jesus, what distinguishes to one has like physical. He has like force and can make people fearful, mm-hmm. right? Um, but Jesus doesn't. He's more gentle than that. But stuff, you, so.
0: so, maybe leaning more toward pathetic. Yeah, but add in the kingdom, add in the eschaton, add in resurrection. And suddenly Jesus becomes much more than you can't frame him as either pathetic or tragic anymore. Um, he dies, even though he could win, Yeah, you know, he dies even though he could live, you know, it, it totally changes the category. So when the women come to and they want to, Almost give him some props in their pity for him, right. like like he's some kind of tragic figure. He says, "No, I should I should not be pitied. You should be pitied." This is an interesting yeah. part right here, by the way. Why like why is he saying that the the women need to be pitied and their children?
2: Well, I I think if we take what normal tragedy in the Greek world is thought of, Niebuhr gets into this, and in, I think in section one and two that. Tragic heroes are normally people who are exceptional. They're they're heroes. They're people who have great wealth. They're kings. Agamemnon, um, you know, Orestai, uh, these these kind of figures. The regular people like you, me, and Zach are not are we aren't able to be tragic figures. We don't get the attention of the gods. <laughs> you know, they don't really care about us. Right? right? But if if we if we if we take that and maybe democratize that a bit and say, "Well, Jesus isn't really a tragic figure worth weeping because he's sinless, mm-hmm. then maybe you should look at your own self. Why are you actually weeping for this guy? Does it tell you something a bit more about your own condition? You
0: know mm-hmm. Let me read this from Niebuhr. He says the the cross is not tragic, but the resolution of the tragedy." Here, suffering is carried into the very life of God and overcome. It becomes the basis. The cross becomes the basis of salvation. And listen to this part. This is important. This is where he turns it back on the women. Yet it has tears of pity Mm -hmm. for those who do not understand life profoundly enough to escape the chaos of impulse and chance by which most lives are determined. Weep yeah. for yourselves and your children. So Jesus is saying the people who need to be weeped, or who need to be wept for, are those weeping who yeah. do not understand. There's
2: something more than that which perishes here. Yeah, I wonder if you were to take this into the 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 the, the gala, the the night. Um, Mel Gibson's uh, what, what's the movie about Christ? <laughs> The passion. The passion. And you were the sadist to everyone who's like passing out and crying in the movie theater. Like, <laughs> do, I do not weep what... for him. <laughs> everybody, let me get your attention. <laughs> everybody stop weeping. Y'all don't understand.
0: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So, okay. I think that we have the, ba- the basis here for, because throughout this, he, he is going to be saying that it there is something very pathetic about those or pitiful about, or it's to be pitied about those who view the world as so chaotic and evil that there is only pity. Um, there's something uh, to be pitied about that. But let's let's move on to the, to the first section. I named it Most Die Pitifully, Not Tragically. This is Niebuhr the Realist here. He says that ordinary human experience as opposed to the Christian view is pitiful, not tragic. So everybody, so Niebuhr's coming in saying everybody wants to believe that life is tragic. And most of the things that we call tragic, Niebuhr says, is actually just pathetic from the certain perspective of ordinary experience Hmm. as opposed to the Christian view. in In this section, he's basically going to be arguing tragedy is very, very seldom. We want to glorify death. In some ways it might comfort us, but most people are just pathetic. Most people die pitiful lives, you know, in tragedy, Niebuhr says one suffers because, you know, he is strong and not because he is weak. The hero is harmed because of virtue, not vice tragedy. He says that kind of tragedy is very rare, but regarding the pitiful Niebuhr says, quote, most men perish in weakness, frustration, and confusion. That's the reality of the situation. I'm sorry to be a Debbie Downer to our audience. Most of y'all, most of us, will die in weakness, frustration, and confusion.
2: Now, Niebuhr goes on to say that we weep for them. Uh, but there, he said, but there, in our tears. There is no catharsis of pity and terror, such as Aristotle regards as a proof in consequence of true tragedy. There is pity, but no terror. So let me ask you, Cliff. So we pity them. What what would make someone terror in in tragedy? Would it be like a crucifixion, or would it be something different? I
0: think terror would be caused by the... If you think about it in kind of literary terms, terror happens when something great is shook to its core. Hmm. World Trade Center, Pearl Harbor you know, that's when we think of something that's sheer terror, it's that kind of stuff where we have kind of this baseline of comfort and stability that is all of a sudden shook to its core. And suddenly we are reminded of kind of the frailty of the powerful type of thing. So in, in, Mm. in a context of tragedy, the hero who we all believe in and trust in and root for that hero is shook in its final expression as a feeble defeated character, hmm. you know? So terror is, so what, what Niebuhr is saying right here is that, but in our tears, there is no catharsis it, in terror. There's at least some catharsis that we tried to scale. The hero tried to break the bo- the bounds of humanity uh but failed um so in terror there's there's a certain catharsis which which can be found in just the simple question if we're talking about like 9 11 just the simple question of why us there's a certain catharsis Mm -hmm. attached to that and that Hmm. we are implicitly admitting that this is rare this doesn't happen yeah this doesn't happen to us uh, this isn't quote-unquote normal. Uh, terror kind of contains that certain element of safety and security, despite this one thing.
2: And terror seems to, like, in some instances, cleanse the mind of his ignorance, right? So, like, the women who are waiting for Jesus, they're not... Are they terrified? No. I, I mean, I wouldn't. I wouldn't think so. No, they're probably quite used to
0: crucifixion. Yeah. Unfortunately. They're
2: just sad yeah they're Shit just insane.
0: sad he's just pitiful
2: yeah i mean i i think maybe what you, the example you gave of 9-11 i mean that was a very terrifying i remember a lot we think i think i was in first grade when that happened really young and the subsequent decades that followed that i mean every single year you know it's kind of like well we gotta fight we gotta fight terror mm-hmm. <laughs> terror yeah. it's crazy i don't know
0: and that was a way of dealing with it probably too of feeling like we are doing something to yeah. prevent that from happening again and creating a new normalcy
2: that's a really weird way of putting it because i think in at least in greek tragedy the way well this kind of cathartic experience with with function like okay maybe maybe we had it wrong you know, maybe we should think more about this. But in our own context, what often happens is we have a brief moment of like, "Oh my God, that was awful." Mm-hmm. We should go kill those guys. Yeah. <laughs> like we turn it back on them. I don't know.
1: Well, it's a, it's a, it's like a short-lived tool of the human psyche. You know what I mean? Yeah. You people say you have to seize on a tragedy. You know what I mean? Like you have to, like a crisis has to be used. You know what I mean? Um, and I think that, yeah, I think that's part of the issue. You know what I mean? Yeah. Is that it's a kind of a fleeting moment.
0: I, ju- I just had to look this up just now, but Reagan's um, address to the nation after the Challenger explosion. I don't know why my mind went to this, but he is masterfully crafting this narrative of tragedy. Um, and I think that this actually gives us a good glimpse in kind of what Niebuhr is talking about when he's when he's trying to assess what is tragic versus pathetic. Uh, he says, your loved ones were daring and brave. And they had that special grace, that special Mm -hmm. spirit that says, give me a challenge and I'll meet it with joy. They had a hunger to explore the universe and discover its truths. They wished to serve and they did. They served all of us. We've grown used to wonders in this country. It's hard to dazzle us, but for 25 years, the United States space program has been doing just that. We've grown used to the idea of space and perhaps we forget that we've only just begun we're still pioneers and at some point he talks about like i, f- I forget exactly what he says but something like they t- they they touch the face of god or something like that kind of painting this picture of these heroes you know that died almost in battle yeah you know um they went
2: beyond what is a normal i love that they have that special that, thing, that special thing that's like so reminiscent of what we're talking about here is that only a few can have that. So yeah, know, they are truly tragic heroes. Oh, here space. it is.
0: the The crew of the space shuttle Challenger honored us by, uh, by the manner in which they lived their lives. We will never forget them, nor the last time we saw them this morning, as they prepared for their journey and waved goodbye and slipped the surly bonds of Earth to touch the face of God. Wow.
1: Oh. Jeez. <laughs> That's a little hyped up.
0: I love it. A little be dramatic, but you know, it's so like, dramatic. But dude, that, that is like a masterful, like portrait of a Greek tragic yeah. type of figure. That yeah. Was, you know, slipping the surly bonds of earth to touch the, to touch the face of God and their penalty was death. But that is why, that is why yeah. we revere them. That is why we lift them up. Yeah. You know, yeah. is they were
1: breaking. That's like a really law. subtle. It's so subtle too, because it's like, it would be really hard to identify that in the moment, you know what I mean? Or, you know, because you, there's a tendency for everyone wanting to exalt that endeavor in that way, you know what I mean? But not to think about it in, cer- in terms of how it resembles that myth uh, or those myths, I guess you could say. Well,
0: And, and the thing is, I think what Niebuhr going to be going at here is that we tend to take these very glorified heroic type of stories and paint our entire lives with this type of tragic view of history and tragic view mm-hmm. of the world um, and the next thing he goes on and I had to do some background on this guy, but, uh, Niebuhr goes on to critique who we can only assume is, uh, the British novelist, Thomas Hardy. He only calls him Hardy in this chapter. <laughs> so I, I have a sneaking suspicion that Niebuhr forgot his first name and that's why he didn't include it, but, uh, but Hardy. So a little background on Hardy, uh, Hardy was, uh, influenced by romanticism and was critical of progress as many you know 19th century romantics were and he was kind of a Debbie Downer this Hardy guy and Niebuhr says that Hardy this is, this is very important I think to understanding where he's going with this pathetic tragic thing Niebuhr says that Hardy was a pessimist and his characters are therefore not tragic so what do you think he means by this because Hardy was a pessimist he could not conjure, he could not create a tragic character. How?
1: Because there is in pessimism. There is no, I mean, I, I think what he's saying is there's no, there is no tragedy. It's just despair. It's something it's like, there's nothing heroic about anything.
0: You need a hero to have a tragedy. You have to
2: have some form of optimism. Challenge of, yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, I, yeah. hope he loves a of hope. Mm-hmm.
2: something bigger than yourself yeah. something greater than yeah
0: there has to be some hope to create a, a tragedy but pure pessimism can will always end up in pathetic and, and, and what's pathetic and pitiful so yeah so what i have in my notes here is tragedy is only possible if there's some measure of hope in the character where you believe in them and they fail uh and, but pitiful is just someone who arbitrarily dies like yeah. everybody else. So to contrast two historical characters, okay, as depicted in film, I want to talk about two historical characters as depicted in film. If you, Have you guys ever seen The Crown? Yes. No. Okay, The Crown's a story that traces kind of the life of Queen Elizabeth. And in the very first season, King George VI, Queen Elizabeth's father, is diagnosed with lung cancer. And you see this very dark, slow descent into death. I don't know how many episodes it lasts, but it seems like forever. It almost turned me off to the whole show because how dark this got. I mean, all of a sudden they're like saying, We need to remove your lung. And then, and then him being like, Okay, good. Okay, we got that done. And then them being like, Actually, your other lung is like <laughs> is like half not working <laughs> and then it's like it's it's just slowly and slowly he's coming to the realization there's no escaping this you know yeah uh and you, so you see this powerful man slowly being reduced to utter hopelessness he and he just dies N- not on some glorious battlefield but in a bed surrounded by his servants You know, that's pathetic. That's pitiful. Okay. Now, another historic figure, historical figure depicted in film as a tragic hero is William Wallace in Braveheart. You guys seen this?
2: All right. I've been a lot of Mel Gibson uh, dropping in this, by the way. What's that? Well, my uncle lives in Sterling, which is where uh, Wallace's tower is. Oh, really? I've been there multiple times. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Well, he like I don't know what the reality is behind William Wallace, um, but was the way aristocrat. that he's depicted, he was an aristocrat. Yeah, I agree, okay. Yeah. But he dies. His death is a direct consequence of basically fighting the British, right? And nothing makes this whole scene of his death more tragic than his final scream, "Freedom!" I don't know if you guys remember that, yeah. but it's that's what makes it tragic. Is that he's it's his moral striving that leads to his demise. It's a noble cause. It's not pessimistic. It's very hopeful in his cause. And yet despite his striving, he ultimately dies. So Niebuhr is saying that Thomas Hardy was incapable of creating a tragic figure because he was far too pessimistic. There needs to be some hope in the character. But this is the important part of the chapter. Niebuhr says that from a human experience, Hardy's characters are actually more real. King George the VI's death, okay, while extremely grim and dark and seemingly purposeless, that kind of death is far more common than William Wallace's tragic death. Tragedy is the exception in death. Pathetic and pitiful death is the rule.
2: Great t-shirt idea.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There you go. You're on yeah. top of it,
2: our our uh, our merch store is going to be absolutely inundated with requests. For just- but you see how we're uh we're kind of using
0: humor a little bit to shield us from this. Yeah, I don't. But <laughs> stop psychoanalyzing. I'm sorry.
2: sorry. <laughs> it's, like, it's not fun.
0: Yeah, I didn't want to get too grim, but you know, let's face it: we three will probably die pathetic, meaningless deaths. Does that get to
2: you? Yeah, I Aaron. Yeah, yeah. Why? What? Yeah. <laughs> How about you,
0: Zach?
1: I try not to think Are about you? it. I, okay. I, I try not to think about it. I, I don't really care about a noble death. So not really then. This is what Eber
0: ultimately says. He says, "Quote: An actual life, pathos, pathetic, pitiful, overwhelms tragedy, and the spectator feels only pity, without reverence." Ugh. Pity without reverence. Sorry, guys. This is really a downer of an episode.
1: <laughs>
2: so so is that basically saying that the spectator viewing William Wallace will have more pity for him than reverence?
0: Without the full that's true. context I mean, of that's his life, yeah. I think so.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah so, I think that's 100% true.
0: I keep talking about the crown, but I think this is why it was such a strong depiction for me like it was it's so saddened me and disturbed me it's because i think that that i think king uh king george the sixth died like everybody and, and i think that that's you know a lot of times when we see death on the screen it's coming because of a hero or a villain it's not coming because of pure arbitrariness you know <laughs> like and and that was kind of what was disturbing it was it was and and i think that you know basically the diagnosis of king george the and his slow kind of careening toward death took all the reverence away from this man like as he gets closer to death so the dignity and reverence of the throne dies with him kind of and goes away and it's so sad he he just becomes a helpless frail human and the castle that he's in becomes nothing more than just an arbitrary place he's he happens to be dying you know and same could be said for you know the the nice bed that he was on or whatever like it's it, de- like the the true pathetic nature of death tends to be a black hole for all nobility dignity and mm. and everything
2: Reminds me of this quote from Harriet Beecher Stowe and the preface. It might be more pessimistic than actually tragic, but it's, it's more pathetic. I think Um, she says that all men are free and equal in the grave. Yeah. Wow. Man, that just, that just punched me in the gut. But you hear that kind of like in common speech with people all around you. Like if you're talking about some sort of celebrity or, you know, You know, we're we're, we're all equal in that coffin or something like that. You know, it's kind of like a Hmm. people are aware of that. I I wonder if, you know, maybe this is if we're trying to maybe make an empirical claim. Maybe maybe Niever is right. You know, like people are more pathetic. He's being a
0: realist, you know, I mean, that it's kind of cutting away a little bit of our illusions about from Hollywood or fiction. Um, or or maybe even our best history sometime is is laced with kind of the the tragic tropes.
2: I wonder know. if I mean, American history, we just kind of got off this October and the election cycle. But like, remember, when we were reading this book on Christian nationalism, I wonder what tragic elements are in that, that, that here's this nation, oh my gosh, forging yeah. itself Not. out of a, out of a society from Britain and it's instituting new laws and new rules and new nations.
1: I think its primary fault is that it doesn't emphasize the tragic element of life at all. It tries to transcend it through some triumphalistic narrative. You know, what I mean, some like we we are we are victorious and we mm-hmm. will be victorious. Um, so it's triumphal.
0: And, it's not tragic.
1: That's- yeah, it's like there's no there's no opportunity for like lament or anything like that or repentance. It's just it may be repentance, but it's not the the classic. No, I mean-
2: in that um, book itself though they they're talking about how the country has gone downhill <laughs> you know like how we've 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 uh, disregarded god and morality and these things and the, how the only way to you know become in his good graces again is to you know do whatever they say is properly good so I, I wonder in that in that essence if, if there are tragic elements yeah. you know maybe they don't understand uh, yeah. you know but now yeah. Niebuhr Niebuhr's not saying this is
0: good he's not saying that us dying pathetic lives is good uh he's just saying it's reality um and for but for those who have this view that that's all that there is uh that it's just pathetic um and you know what when you experience tragedy or when you experience true something truly pathetic and somebody dying a normal death the those illusions of like a heroic tragedy kind of fall to the wayside, and you see death for all of its naked, barren, you know, uh, evil. And it's easy to to just stop there, you know, um, and and be that pathetic. And so what Niebuhr is saying for those who die pathetically from a from a you know non Christian perspective, Niebuhr says, "quote We weep for them." Because they are unable to heed the words of Jesus. They will not bring themselves to any other conclusion but that which is pitiful. So pity them. In other words,
1: oh. in
2: other words, pity those yeah. who see the world as pitiful. This is what he says here at the end of section one. He says the, tr- the really tragic hero of warfare is not the soldier who makes the greatest mm-hmm. sacrifice, but the occasional discerning spirit who plunges into the chaos of war with a full understanding of its dark, unconscious sources in the human psyche, and an equal resolution either to defy these forces or to submit himself as their tool and victim in recognition of his common humanity with those who are unconscious victims. Yeah. What's he, what's he saying there? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I, no, I think I, I, get I, it. think, like, I yeah. think it's the exact real tragedy the t- real tragic hero tragic heroes themselves are mixed within the weeping women mm-hmm. they don't really understand what's going on i think as they is saying the true tragic heroes are those like you know who knows it. who knows what's going on deeply yeah
0: the women don't know
2: yeah which would bring up a weird case because jesus actually knows what's going on right yeah so he's he's somewhat a tragic figure you know because he understands what's going on, but then it, the complication becomes for neighbor, you know, he he's not, he's more than that right. as well. You know, he's beyond it. He's yeah, beyond
0: it. Yeah, that's a great point. And we'll get to, to Jesus here in a second. So despite saying that most of life is pitiful, not tragic, and we're moving on to the second part now, second section, which I've named Greek forms of tragedy, transcending, going up, descending, going down, and finally demanding pity from people yeah. uh so despite saying that in the last section that most of life is pitiful not tragic he does say that that life cannot possibly be only pitiful and he says that tragedy isn't only reserved for an occasional hero of great nobility and strength but often the two he's saying are compounded and he gives the example of othello he, he brings up a bunch of different examples here but the the example of Othello is one who is driven to murder to do harm because of his passionate love for Desdemona. And so basically his strength of passionate love, that's a good thing, being passionately loving, actually becomes his undoing. It, it becomes a source of his murderous spree. Um, and uh, so his source, his strength becomes a source of his weakness. So that's kind of Tragic, and he calls these people semi tragic figures and he brings up Ibsen and uh King Lear. Lear is the victim of both his love and his obtuseness, Niebuhr says, so that he loves the daughters who hate him and hates the daughter who loves him. So it's just kind of a almost a confusion of strengths in a way, um, with all these examples. So, all these examples that he gives right here. It's not, it, I think this is, uh, this serves the purpose in this chapter, just to say that it's not as cut and dry as we think it is in life with that which is pitiful and that which is tragic. There are some, uh, sometimes comical things, sometimes ironic things. I'm actually surprised he doesn't use the term irony here because that it, it might be useful yeah, in point. this context. Uh, maybe he'll come, maybe this is kind of the process he goes through to get to that term irony, um, in writing this book, but, um, But all these examples are kind of tragic in that the character suffers because of a strength. Um, But it's a comical, unintended consequence of their strength is basically what's going on. But then he hops to something that he's calling pure tragedy. Uh, What does he say about this? What is pure tragedy? I think he hops to the Greeks now. Yeah. yeah.
2: Pure tragedy for to neighbor is, is Greek drama. And it is tragedy brought about by someone's own actions they do it to themselves all of us yeah, yeah.
0: so i think he um, explains it as you know the, the pure tragedy is suffering directly because of one's strength um, mm. particularly a moral strength or one's kind of higher duty or some kind of code mm. um, that they will defy the gods to be in alignment with this code or whatever um, and he gives the example of prometheus
2: yeah, I mean, he he says something. To, he says uh, that tragedy, the su- pure tragedy, is suffering is self inflicted. The hero does not transmute what ha- what happens to him, but initiates the suffering by his own acts. Mm-hmm. So he brings about on himself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I you know, they don't really understand this. they don't have to understand exactly what's happening. I mean, for instance, Orestai uh, marrying his mother, whose mo- his mother killed his father, so then he kills. His mother, he only married his mother by accident as well. but I didn't realize it was his mom, so he, it's like all oh, this, this stuff. Is, are you talking Oedipus now? Yeah, I think okay. so. Oedipus, right? Uh, no, you Ar- arrest, arrest, yeah.
0: Oh, I have no idea, but yeah, or
2: Stein.
1: but yeah, yeah, but they're, I, but they're all kind know. of
0: dragged into fate and they're all kind of uh, trying yeah. to defy fate, and then that causes their undoing type
2: yeah. of thing. And just to clarify, yeah, and eat a person or or are not the same okay <laughs> <It's> just... <laughs> go ahead, any, go.
1: anyone anyone and we and i would advise any reader that's planning to you know any listener that's planning to read this chapter eight of beyond tragedy uh hop on youtube and uh before you read the chapter watch a couple short summaries of each of <laughs> these myths i think it'll it'll be a little more uh coherent that's a to, good idea because i um, do
0: think that we get to a lot of Niebuhr's understanding about human nature and ethics from his comparative work between greek myths and christianity yeah
1: well it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be hard to like you know just watch like a short i'm sure there's a little short video explaining each of these you could just highlight them and paste mm-hmm. them in there and you know because i mean that for me that's kind of a difficulty this you know it's Probably my, the most difficult section of this whole entire book so far yeah. has been this this actual second section of this chapter. So
0: well, it, a lot of it is just because he's going over stories that maybe we're not familiar with or we haven't yeah exactly. across in a long yeah. time. But uh, with the example of Prometheus, now to, to remind our listeners of his definition of tragic is that uh, we fail because of our strength um we it's like william wallace his strength is to oppose uh britain and his courage but that's what ultimately kills him so prometheus has this important trade-off of getting fire defying the gods to get fire which ultimately costs him his life well he's he's
2: put up on a uh thing he's tortured he's tortured. by uh, I think having that oh. as flesh.
0: Nice. So that's, that's a tragedy in that he's doing something good, but it's necessarily in the Greek world, it's necessarily wed to suffering. So goodness, like, or, or I'm trying, I'm sorry, strength is defying the gods and is necessarily evil. So what is the difference between the Promethean myth and the garden, the garden of Eden? they don't go after fire but they go after knowledge
1: uh, i mean i see i see the that there is a similarity between them <laughs> he says in this line that promethean tra- tragedy in other words recognizes the perennial self-destruction of man by his over- overreaching himself mm-hmm. and i i i think there's an element of deception also in the i mean there's an element of overreaching you could say or or disobedience i guess is different you know what i mean like there's a difference mm-hmm. between self uh overreaching and disobedience there's a difference between deception and like self-aggrandizement, you know what I mean? Or it's, or exalting oneself to the preeminent spot. And so I see some distinctions between those two myths. Yeah. There, there
0: are some subtle distinctions. Um,
2: How about you, Aaron? <laughs> uh, Garden and Prometheus. Well, in my mind goes to just, well, first thing punishment, you know, like what is the outcome? I mean, Prometheus, just to kind of bring back to the board, he, he's punished to eternal torment by Zeus. Zeus is uh, an eagle um, comes to eat his liver and his liver will grow back overnight and then the eagle comes back to eat it again. So it's like it, it's a oh representative gosh. of Zeus to torment uh, eternal punishment. I mean, Adam and Eve they, they, got, a yeah, they got a slap on a wrist. Yeah, a slap on a wrist compared to that. Just death. Yeah, just hard toil and death. You know, <laughs> hard working at McDonald's for like for 30 years. Uh, and I, I, but they're also not demigods i mean they're people created in the image of god who what's the distinction well um they they don't have i mean they're not they're not described in terms of their strength or you know their illustrative you know mm. things they can do their powers what they are intended for is to be fruitful and multiply, right? So I think that is one of the distinctions you could probably draw from you that. You could say image
0: of God implies a certain transcendence already over nature. Sure. Freedom would be maybe mm. one thing. Um
2: if is what you're There's getting the creativity, at. a yeah. freedom the creativity. that's
0: already above nature, and what Niebuhr, the Prometheus had
2: to steal, and yeah. that was his sin. But we are already naturally imbued yeah.
0: with that creativity. Yeah, I see where you're going. At.
2: And Niebuhr, what Niebuhr is going to say next is that for the tragic writers, creativity and evil are so bound up together mm-hmm. that life is itself seen as tragic. Yeah. What Niebuhr going to do is try to separate those two terms from one another in the Christian worldview. That's interesting.
0: Okay, so let me think about this for a second.
2: I can read you the quote as well. Yeah. Say what you just said again. So, what Niebuhr Niebuhr's assessment of tragic poetry, um, especially in Greek drama, is that cr- creativity. So he the t- creativity he, necessarily means evil it does because on on both poles right cuz you can be creative in the promethean sense where you're you're reaching beyond what's natural right mm-hmm. and you're stealing something that's sort of secret or sacred you know from you so there's that religious element to it but in the dionysius element um you're which we cre- haven't gotten to yet we're not yet. getting to but you your your creativity is a sort of a consequence of your hidden impulses that you don't you're not aware of you just kind of do it like your lusts for something else Hmm. you know I I could be really creative and have loads of children you know by sleeping with loads of women the under undergirding impulse might be an example of that right
0: it's interesting that evil and and creativity is always kind of bound together in their view because especially when you look at kind of the hero like Odysseus (laughs) who was the best hero because he was deceptive deceptive was kind of being deceptive was like the ultimate form of creativity yeah in their mind Be, and and deception is always laced with kind of evil and
2: doing harm this is a yeah. completely off the wall remark but this makes so much sense with Nietzsche with his tirade against christian morality hmm. right that well why should we see deception And you know, hatred and aristocracy is bad things, right? Hmm. They just you have to have these things in order to be a strong man. You know, Christian morality dulls us to those necessary features of tragic Christian
0: morality. Yes, that is true. So anyway, that that's interesting. But uh, but Christianity. Then he goes in kind of into kind of the nuances, and I think
2: we're in part three now. By the way, yeah. Um, he, oh, did I even read that section? Did you want me to read that for yeah, you? Yeah, go ahead and read that. Uh, so what Niebuhr says is, uh, quote, the tragic poet could not get beyond the conception that evil was inextricably involved in the most creative forces of human life. From the standpoint of his conception, life was therefore purely tragic. It, des- it destroyed itself in the noblest bursts of creativity, which always broke the limits placed upon human effort by divine jealousy.
0: Yeah, so so creativity and evil are bound up to one another. What is the difference between that and the Christian conception of sin?
2: Well, what, and maybe uh,
0: we should hit up Dionysus first before we answer that. Yeah. Uh, the yeah, Dionysian, I think so. the Dionysian um, myths where as opposed to the Promethean type of myths, mm-hmm. tragedy is more seen as an impulse of uh, deep into yeah. human nature. So, if the Promethean myth myth is going beyond the human restraints in order to be heroic, then the Dionysian myths are going below yeah. uh, this the constraints of society and acting purely upon impulse yeah. type of thing. So, you you can become a, a tragic hero in both directions yeah. by exceeding your limitations. And plummeting below uh, expectations, I guess, well, not
2: even being aware of, yeah, he's even subconscious. and I, and I think it's important that Niebuhr' is not denying that these are that these are real poles of human existence. He's saying that these are true, mm-hmm. but the conclusions they go to are wrong. Like he says, for instance, that because these things are so inextricably linked up by creative creative and evil, the little pre-moralities that they construct to like restrain themselves never work. Yeah. That's
0: a good. Point. They don't
2: have anything that can stop them from doing the things they keep on doing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. So then what is the alternative? What is Christian sin? And we can go back to garden if we want, but yeah. what is Christian sin compared to the Greek understanding of kind of creativity or impulse or subconscious being tied up with what is evil?
2: Um, well, I, I think it's important to say in both the uh, Promethean and Dionysian um, forms of tragedy, the constant image that Niebuhr gives as the problem is the human imagination, right mm-hmm. um, Even when we apply reason to just subdue ourselves, it you know, the imagination can break beyond that. What Niebuhr says is, is that is basically human freedom, right? Right. It, it's the choices mm. we have. We don't have to be locked into the right. impulses and we don't have to. He, he says something about different dialectic. The gods in the Greek dramas are vindictive and jealous. He says something earlier in the paper that the Greek gods are, have a conception of justice, but they lack love. And Good. therefore they're yes. less, there's something less than love. Great point. But you know, christ the god of you know judaism and in christianity um is love himself Is love and just is yeah. love and just so the reaching beyond our limits the the going the going above doesn't necessarily entail you know vindictive wrath of god right yeah. i guess is the point, right?
0: Well, a couple of little things. First, you got the you nailed the freedom part that good and evil are all bound up in freedom. It's yeah. not just like freedom is necessarily tied to evil. Creativity is necessarily tied to evil, like in the Greek view. Yeah. There like we are are uh created within a baseline of freedom that can become the seed bed for both fruits. But the, the the other side of it is that tragedy is where The Greek myth ends. There's nothing beyond it. And this is getting us back into the main kind of focus of the chapter, that the height of Greek thought ends in tragedy. Creativity is only gained by being evil and incurring your own destruction. That's where it ends okay whereas in christianity there's obviously something beyond tragedy he doesn't necessarily go into it completely but we we can name off some of the virtues that allow us to go beyond tragedy forgiveness grace charity uh yeah you know there there are certain things that allow the story to not completely end faithfulness with just failure and failure because of our creativity Um, So we are we are higher in a way than than what the Greeks suggest, and that we can be creative for good purposes. Uh, We can't just keep ourselves. You know, it's interesting one of the things that really christianity gave a jolt to western civilization when it comes to technology mm-hmm. is concerned is that they is this bed of freedom that that you can actually do good things with yeah. your creativity with your innovation uh but before and say like Aristotle, yeah they had smart people Aristotle, plato the whole lot but they couldn't get you know into the technological advancements that we do or scientific advancements as, as we have in part because their human was so bound so mm-hmm. chained to their own uh they were so enslaved to nature and kind of their own uh structure yeah of of thinking whereas christianity in a lot of ways liberated the mind to go beyond these types of things it
2: reminds me of the movie clash of the titans Remember that Ooh. you know, it was. Uh, I know it. I remember yeah. it. It's a well back. It's a it's a newer, newerish movie. But like, like ten years ago. Yeah, it's like ten years ago. Maybe no, it's not like twenty sixteen. I think. Any, anyway, be, if you know the date of that, I mean, you look it up. Make <laughs> I just watched it like this past week. <laughs> um But the the people, and this is not like you know, it, it's it's a poorly historical movie. It's not even history. What is it? Is it twenty ten? Okay, you know.
0: 12, uh, Twelve years ago. 12 years, okay, go, whatever. Man.
2: Going. You know, everyone is just sick of the gods mm-hmm. because they're just not getting anything. So like they're just they're tearing down all the monuments, mm-hmm. destroying all the temples to Zeus, and like just flipping the bird up to the sky and he's like come, you know, if you want us, come and get us. And that's what the gods do. Like they release the, you know, Hades comes out, releases the, the kraken, kraken and stuff, and mm-hmm. but. what the people are doing is seen as like liberating themselves from the gods Mm -hmm. you know that sort of that sort of freedom so there's a distinction between the the freedom in that sense and the freedom that christianity provides god being necessarily good the world is good Mm -hmm. in in intention and in in creation Mm -hmm. his goodness is the providence that you know keeps things going, right? Mm-hmm. So the Christian doesn't see nature as something competitive with it, right? It's mm-hmm. something to fight against, but it sees something as cooperative, more as partnering. Be
0: cooperative, yeah, yeah. Sorry. No, that's that's a that's a fantastic point. So uh, in this final section, Niebuhr is going to be talking about the similarities between uh, Christianity and Greek myth. In terms of human nature, what like what is he it, it actually says something like, you know, we Christians have a lot more in common with Greek mythology than with utilitarian rationalism, yeah. or says something like that. What yeah. what is what is he talking about here? Oh, what is the part. similarities?
2: However, there, the wide and deep differences which separate the Christian view of life from that of the Greek tragedy, it must be apparent that there are greater similarities the two than between either. And the utilitarian rationalism to dominant contemporary kind of culture.
0: Mm. So what I take from this is oh, that, I see it. so like the utilitarian rationalist has a very flat view of humanity. That we are basically just like
2: focusing on right actions. Yeah, we're
0: mechanical yeah.
2: Hobbesian. How do we maximize creatures? the greatest good for the greatest number of people? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's
0: it's all mathematical, yeah, uh uh formulaic type of understanding of human nature. But with the Greeks and the Christians, there's kind of a dimension there.
2: They have what Niebuhr says is depth. And maybe we can add a word spiritual.
0: Spiritual, yeah. S- have spirit. Yeah. And so to, I I would say that the, the similarities between the Greek and Christian is that I think that they both are talking about the same constraints. I really do. I really think that... that like where they go from there is different but that they get the structure of human nature down in its height and in its depth uh and that the greeks want to say those people who go beyond nature um, are heroic you know and those who plummet below into the subconscious and the impulses they are heroic but christianity flips it on his head and says, no, the heroes are exactly who you shouldn't be. Those are the types of people that you don't want to become. Does that make sense? Yeah. So like the kind of person who goes beyond and and tries to become godlike, defy the gods and become godlike, that's the sin of pride. You know, the people who say, screw it with social conventions, social norms, and act completely off of impulse. That's not heroic. That's a sin. That's that's what you call sinful as well. Does that make sense?
2: So it's kind of like let's, Christianity is turning the hero into the sinner. Yeah. Let, maybe let's take an example from the gospel. I am thinking of, it's, I can't remember if it was in Luke or in Mark. When Jesus sees the poor widow at the temple treasury, right? She's putting her two little copper coins in. Mm-hmm. And then he points her out, saying, "Amongst all these wealthy and well-to-do people, that she has the greatest faith or mm-hmm. something, the greatest love." So if we were to put those into like the Greek computer, the, uh, the Greek calculator, right, mm-hmm. to see who yeah. who's the best tragic figure, she would be pathetic, right? By far, she would be absolutely dirt poor, pathetic. Why are you giving up your last coin? Yeah, that like, makes no sense, we do, Like you're an idiot. You should invest that in crypto or something.
0: <laughs> Not now. But but it, at least it would have been heroic for her to just act on her impulses in that moment or yeah. to defy, you know, and steal. Maybe I don't yeah. I don't know. Like it would have been much. It would, she would have been much more heroic had she broken her position. But Jesus is saying that because you're giving up your last coin. You yeah. have the greatest faith.
2: So it is an inversion of what is you know, heroic and not.
0: You know, we did miss an important part, and that is that the heroes are wanting to be uh, mourned, or they're wanting... I did bring it up earlier. Yeah, you did bring it up much earlier. But something about uh, the hero uh, demands um, pity, pity yeah. from the people. Mm, because that's... look what I tried to do, and I
2: failed, but at least I tried... You know, oh yeah. let's cry. <laughs> Doesn't ever say something like, yeah, it just it's kind of like helps their fragile ego a bit. <laughs> like mm-hmm. the bruised, bruised ego. They fail, but like hey, you look you, you did a really good job trying. This might be the origin of you know, trophy, uh what is that? Oh uh, participation trophies. Yeah, participation trophies. Yeah, yeah. Uh
0: so the the hero, if they are transcending or descending in Greek tragedies. Is always wanting to be pitied, uh, but Jesus is saying, "Don't pity me. Um, I'm not someone to be pitied." Yeah, uh, <laughs> implying that the Christian story does not end in tragedy like the Greek stories do. That this isn't going to be a pity party for this tragic hero. No matter how we label Christ before, as was would without resurrection, is Christ pitiful or is he tragic? Whatever he's not to be pitied in, in this moment, like he's uh, he's something that is beyond a tragic figure. Um, and, and now he goes into, um, a survey of the modern titans and heroes, whether nations or the oligarchs of nations, whether political or economic and industrial oligarchs must certainly justify this Christian estimate of their true character. These nations and these leaders overreached themselves so pitifully where did your mind go when he said this these nations and these leaders overreach themselves so pitifully
2: i was saying historically he goes into talking about japan mm-hmm. and later so my mind went to germany and and you know this authoritarian nations
0: yeah yeah absolutely germany is probably what he's talking about it is going to be what he's talking about here in a second but i um but my mind it went in to some putin. way oh my talking. mind went to putin okay because yeah. that's just so fresh still uh i think it was our second episode by the way and by the way i let me let me just read this quote one more time from niebuhr these nations and these leaders overreach themselves so pitifully so pitifully now before the war and, you know, we're here, like we see Putin's troops lining up on the border of Ukraine. We wouldn't think of Putin as being pitiful. Right. Yeah. Operating upon our worldly experience, our under, our ordinary experience, like what Nebra was talking about before. Uh, we would think of this, of of him, this is a major power play. Putin is anything but pitiful. But get this. So I think it was our second episode ever. All right. And Russia had just invaded Ukraine. Ukraine, and I specifically remember. I'm calling you out here, Zach. I specifically yeah. remember when the sanctions started landing on Putin, and I remember Zach saying, uh, "But I'm sure he's already considered this. I'm sure he's already calculated." Do you remember this? And yeah, I, oh yeah. And I was like, and I, this is this is seriously what I was thinking." I'm not sure he does know. I'm not sure he knows what he's gotten himself into because here's the thing. Prideful people, no matter how smart they are, prideful people are idiots. Okay. Yeah. We are complete imbeciles when we're prideful, totally irrational. And so what what Niebuhr says next is, quote, their strength is so obviously bogus. It is weakness which poses as strength. It is the pride of an inferiority complex. Putin was pitiful all along, okay? He goes on, it may create, but it destroys more than it creates. Then here comes something prophetic given the time it was written. And remember, this is written in 1937. Niebuhr says, quote, it involves Europe in carnage for the sake of a brief hour of glory. So imagine Hitler, not Putin this time, lining up uh, on the border of of Czechoslovakia or whatever. He is not not to be seen as some hero here. He is pathetic. Now, just as an aside, Niebuhr says that there are a lot of similarities, like I said, between Greeks and Christianity. um, And we can say this is true in kind of the general construction of human nature. But let's be clear on this point. That the Greek heroes are the actually the models of sinful behavior. I brought this up earlier. All the Greek heroes, and both their height and their depth, are moral stories of who not to become. Uh, Putin would f- would be quite nicely fit quite nicely into a Greek hero tragedy. You guys, are you guys saying that? Yeah. Hitler would fit quite nicely into a I'm Greek trying. tragedy of a hero somebody who tried to defy the gods and tried to defy you know uh social constraints and social norms in order to attain uh, the greatness that is germany and dang it he died but it was glorious that's tragedy and that shows the perversity i think of the greek way of understanding human nature
1: do not you think niebuhr would though turn around and say that that is if I imagine if he was here now, he might turn that around on us, you know, the same, that same mentality you could say about, you know, the U S for instance, like, yes, we recognize the stupidity or the, or the tragic element of Putin invading Ukraine, but at the same time, we're doing things currently that, that are literally leading down a path of destruction, like uh, global warming or, um, you know, some of these other things where, where we try to defy our limits, and it uh, yeah it, I um, think that
0: there's a host of things like AI yeah. and some a lot of things to be wary about
1: Nuc- nuclear weapons
0: that we can't just go running headlong into that I fear that we are but I think that there I think that there are signs that you know my paper was all about how our ethics will ultimately catch up with whatever technology we create we absolutely need at the center a christian construction and conception of both justice and human nature i believe in order to attain that or we're going to run headlong into these things like a greek freaking tragedy um and you know i always come back whenever i'm explaining my thesis i always come back to the the differences or like the the story of jurassic park because jurassic park actually has a very christian understanding of human nature and that uh, we we don't view the owner of the freaking Jurassic Park as a tragic hero reaching for the stars and creating these genetically modified dinosaurs and defying the gods to do this. And and he gets eaten by a dinosaur. I don't think he actually gets eaten by the dinosaur. But all this tragedy ensues because he was reaching for the stars. We don't see that guy as heroic. Yeah. It would be bad if we did. But Jurassic Park rests on the notion that we are a Christian type of culture that will interpret that as pride, as a bad thing. That he he played God, he messed with things he shouldn't have messed with, uh, and dang it, I mean, he got what he deserved, ultimately. As long as we're still viewing technology through that lens that Michael Crichton wrote the Jurassic Park stories, as long as we continue viewing things through that lens, that's a good thing. The moment that we slip into this kind of tragic understanding of human nature we're in some deep trouble with things like technology and and uh, we're, we're no longer, we're going to be reaching for that uh, transhumanism without any restraints, without any restrictions. And dang it. If, if it costs us our very lives, it's worth it. We tried, we tried touching the face of God.
2: I was just going to ask you this because this might be, so let me just work this out earlier in this paper, Niebuhr, gives kudos to Nietzsche in saying that tragedy is something beyond pessimism and optimism, mm-hmm. right? Now, as we've been reading through the Greek tragedies, well, part partially today, and what Niebuhr has given us, they are embedded in some sort of religious reverence as well. What happens when the Greek tragic hero, according to Aristotle, you have pity and terror. It cleanses that cathartic experience where it cleanses your conscience. Like, oh, man, maybe maybe I overstepped my boundaries maybe a bit. you know, Maybe I need to really think about these sorts of things. Christianity has a sort of measure of doing that. But do you think to have a true tragedy it, – it, I guess what I'm saying is wouldn't it be better – like if we didn't have Christian tragedy, wouldn't it be better to have a Greek tragedy than, say, a nihilistic culture? hmm
0: i don't know. <laughs> you know i don't know if a nihilistic culture is possible like I, i'm like yeah. what what does that look like i guess like would you consider yeah. like something like what hitler was doing was kind of nihilistic well
2: i i, I was just thinking as well no because i mean hitler used religious symbols and i think he made a whole religion up or nazi culture did as well it's difficult to imagine a nihilistic. nihilist yeah. Well, because because it, it, from what Niebu- what Nietzsche says, is something beyond optimism and pessimism. The Germans obviously had a lot of optimism in their culture. Mm-hmm. Some Greek attitudes have a lot of pessimism about human nature. You know, so we have to get a culture that moves beyond those sorts of qualities that we're pessimistic about our chances, that we're also optimistic about. You know becoming ubermensch mm-hmm. those are I, I guess kind of hard to imagine because we all we're always inundated with passions of, mm-hmm. of ourselves of self-aggrandizement and stuff um so i don't know if i don't know if a nihilistic college is possible then, that's a separate question yeah. but i
0: think what you're asking is basically isn't it better than nothing isn't it better than like a formulaic utilitarian yeah yeah ty- type of type which of
2: might be the thing that's beyond it at least optimism, gets into right? the depths
0: you know yeah. of what human nature is the greeks do but it still praises the wrong things
1: it
2: does no of
0: course and and in a way i think that i think that as a western culture i think that that's almost our default i think that utilitarianism existed in academia I I don't think that that was something that caught on among people. Like maybe businessmen, yeah. entrepreneurs, maybe they they saw the world in kind of utilitarian terms, like formulaic terms or something like that. But I think the general public wouldn't would never have that type of view. I think that we'll always, if we were to lose Christianity, we'd probably go closer to something like Greek hedonism, Roman hedonism, yeah. or or something like that. No, I can And see that. and the, how this ultimately goes, where this ultimately goes, is. The all the Greek heroes, in both their height and their death, are moral stories of what not to become. Yes, by all means, Niebuhr is saying, "Weep for yourselves." Jesus is saying, "Weep for yourselves and weep for those idiotic heroes." Okay, but do not weep for Jesus. Jesus isn't a tragic hero. This is the big like. This is the climax of this of this chapter. Jesus is not a tragic hero. So don't weep for him. He's the opposite of a tragic hero. I called yeah.
2: him an anti-hero. Yeah. But uh, gives me uh sort of vibes of Alain Badu's anti-philosophers. <laughs> um oh yeah. Yeah. And Saint Paul. Yeah, Saint yeah. Paul. Um, but they, yeah, they don't accomplish anything. <laughs> like freaking Sisyphus, you know, yeah, other, it is like other Sisyphus. than being unfortunately named almost uh, to a venereal disease Uh, he's, he's also having to roll, roll up a rock up a hill for freaking eternity yeah
0: that's true Uh, so d- Jesus is not a tragic hero he is the opposite and to quote Niebuhr quote Jesus dies not because he has sinned but because he has not sinned and in fact he proves that sin is so much a part of existence that sinlessness cannot maintain itself in the sinful world so Jesus is proving he's not a Greek hero by not sinning um but that culture is so inundated with this heroic type of understanding of tragedy and the world that he pays the ultimate penalty for that so and he says quote he is indeed defeated in history but in that very defeat proves that he cannot, ultimately be defeated dang so so jesus is the perfectly constructed anti-hero and that he does not succumb to pride he does not succumb to his own impulses he he does not become a hero in his height nor in his depth um but he maintains his position as a human. In, in a lot of ways, Niebuhr makes the argument that Jesus is Jesus, not because of how divine he is, but because of how perfectly human he is, how perfectly he remains within the constructs that God designed for humanity, uh, of not leaping outside of itself to defy the gods and not sinking below itself uh to to serve its own impulses. Mm-hmm. does that make sense? yeah, so and and that's what makes him divine is basically how freaking human he becomes, how much of the image of God he actually becomes by not becoming heroic, the pinnacle of of humanity
2: mm. I See what you're saying. Any last words
0: um what will we be doing next week? Next week we're off to chapter nine, yeah, and j- just a note for it. our listeners: uh, we will be taking off a few weeks in December.
1: Um, uh, Ironically, number because- nine is so perfect to, to kick off some sort of Advent thing. You know, it's it's the the suffering servant and the Son of Man. Uh, it it's almost like it's almost like fitting for the time of year. That's
0: right. I'm looking forward to it. So tune in next week for uh, uh, yeah, chapter nine: the suffering servant and the Son of Man. That about does it for this week's episode of Love Thy Neighbor. Like and subscribe, write us a good review, and follow us on Twitter at Love Thy Neighbor for news and updates. Thanks again for listening. Take care, everybody, and stay safe out there.